Okay, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Our Father, as we come to the scriptures, we're reminded once again of the great ministry of the Holy Spirit over the centuries in bringing revelation to us, in selecting especially uh, chosen prophets to inscripturate that revelation and then to preserve the canon of scripture against all its enemies uh, down through the centuries as Satan has tried to suppress the text, try to destroy the text, try to eliminate the text. And yet, the text is here in ever larger and more um, widely distributed form. We thank you for this victory as the Holy Spirit has constantly seen to it that the Word of God has gone forth. And we thank you because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and we cannot believe if we do not know, and we cannot know if we do not get acquainted with your Word. So we ask tonight that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the great things of history, and that we would have that inner confidence that comes about, that unshakableness that comes only because our feet are placed upon the rock and that we understand that history has purpose, history has a goal, and that goal will surely come to pass, that your son shall surely return and shall surely become the world ruler. We thank you now in his name. Amen. Okay, tonight um, we're going to continue with our discussion on the different uh, views on the second advent of Christ. Uh, once again, to review some of the vocabulary. Remember, we're talking, there's basically three different approaches to prophecy. And you should know these words because these words help you think. They're like handles, and they give you tools. So let's look at some of the tools. One word is futurism. Another word is preteritism or preteritism. And a third one is historicism. All views of prophecy can be classified in one of these three areas. Futurism is quite clear. It means that the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ are going to come in the future. They're not things that have been, uh, have come to pass in the past. They're not things that are going on right now. So futurism, there are different views of futurism, of course, but that's a large class of views. Then we talked about preteritism. It's a word that means past. And so that's the label for the view, uh, widely prevalent now in reform circles, that the book of Revelation is actually a code word, code book, written prior to A.D. 70 and describes in symbolic form the fall of Jerusalem and God's judgment upon Israel. And if that is the case, of course, then preteritism must teach that we are in the millennium or the millennium is coming to pass. And, of course, we've all recognized that we live in the millennial kingdom, you know, wars, no more wars, and so forth. Everything's getting better. Well, that's the logical result of preteritism. The third thing is historicism. We haven't touched on that much in Thursday night classes because, frankly, it's not really a competitor now. Historicism was very big in the days of the Protestant Reformation. And the reason was that Protestants thought of the Pope and Roman Catholicism as the Antichrist. 
And that made them see the book of Revelation as though it were, was going on in the 1500s. So historicism has always felt that prophecy is happening now, the book of Revelation, those kind of things. And one of the characteristics of historicism is that anyone who tries to date the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll put a little word under here, date setters, date setters are actually historicists. That is, the only way you can get material to, to make a date setting scheme is to pull it out of the 1240 days or whatever that's going on in the book of Revelation. Well, if you're a futurist, you believe that's the future. That's not happening now. So in order to use those tools to compute some date, they've got to take them out of those future prophecies, bring them into present history, and then do their computations. Uh, from our point of view in our country, uh, the, uh, the United States had its own brand of historicism. Uh, most, the most famous example of it is 1844 when William Miller got everybody up on a hill in New York State thinking Jesus was going to return. And Jesus obviously didn't share the same date as William Miller. And he, that was the start of what we now call the Seventh-day Adventists. That's where they came from. Adventism means the comingness. And that group, and, and there was a, a cults that have formed out of Seventh-day Adventism with Seventh-day Adventism backgrounds, and one of them was the wacko from Waco there that got massacred by the police. Uh, that man, Koresh, that the American press never understood, just labeled him like he was a kooky Christian or something, you know, did, can't think through the fact that people have different beliefs because they're not sophisticated enough to detect it, and totally missed it. If you knew historicism and you knew Adventism, you would have understood what was going on in the mentality of that group, that cult that formed around Waco. But we can't expect our American press at this point in history to have an understanding of those kind of things. Well, that's historicism, and we're not concentrating on that. We've looked at preteritism, so we forget that one. We've looked at one view. We haven't talked about all the historical permutations and variations of preteritism. We've talked about basically the view that's popular today, namely that the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 all depict the judgment on Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And we've gone through the problems with that view, that it's based on a non-literal hermeneutic, that it forces the book of Revelation to have be dated prior to A.D. 70. So it has a number of problems. Now we started in to look at the different views of futurism. And the first view, and the one we'll finish up tonight, is post-tribulationism. And as this word means, post-tribulationism means after the tribulation. Now, these, this nomenclature, and we'll get into post, three-quarter, mid, and pre, the nomenclature here is not talking about the return of Christ over against the millennium. It's not like post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, amillennialism. This pre, post, ah, mill, three-quarter is talking about the rapture versus the return. Now, I'm going to use those two vocabulary words and I warn you at the very start that technically it's not correct 
to use the word return the way I'm using it, scripturally. Because if you look up the word return, the return of Christ encompasses the whole complex of events. But for pedagogical purposes, to classify these and make it clear so we understand what the differences are, I'm going to use these two words, return and rapture. And by return, I'm talking about when Jesus comes out of the clouds and puts his feet on the ground. When Jesus returns to the earth. That's what I mean when I use that vocabulary word. I'm using it in a more specialized way than the New Testament text uses it. So the return, we mean Jesus comes down and he sets up his kingdom. Okay? Rapture, I'm talking about those, those texts, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, addressed to the church that speak of this momentous event when the, live, the dead in Christ will rise to meet him and the people who are on earth who are believers at that point in time will rise to meet him in the air. Rapture and return. Okay? Now, post-tribulationism says it's positioning this rapture and return. And by post-tribulationism, we mean that the rapture comes post-tribulation, means after the tribulation. So the picture we have is the tribulation goes on, seven-year period, comes down to the end, and we have RR together. That is post-tribulationism. And we'll review a little bit in the notes tonight on the problems that post-tribulationism has. One of the problems, as we said, is that post-tribulationism has to, in order to make its case tight, it has to show that it's impossible, um, it's impossible to separate the rapture and the return. That the scriptural data are so interwoven that you can't pull them apart and make two separate events out of them. And no one has yet shown that. And the reason it's hard to show closure and make these identical is this. Passages that speak of the return of Christ go all the way back into the Old Testament. And as such, this is why we spent so much time going through the Old Testament. Going back into the Old Testament, looking down the corridors of time at the Messiah, the ideal king who would come and set up his kingdom. A king has to have a kingdom. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to set up a kingdom. And prior to that, there would be a time of tribulation. All that was defined in the Old Testament. The very word tribulation is defined in the Old Testament. The tribulation that is to precede this, this period of time in here, was considered to be so bad that the Jewish rabbis said, you know, we're happy that the Messiah is going to come, but I don't want to live to witness this. This is going to be a very bad time. And so there was a denial. It's not a denial. I mean, they, they hoped that the thing would you know, get over with, but they didn't want to live through it because they realized it was an ordeal. And the tribulation, according to the Old Testament, basically has two functions. Now, function number one of this tribulational period has two functions. First function is to prepare Israel 
for the return of the Messiah. Get her in spiritual shape to do that. Now, what do we mean, get her in shape? It means so that the Jews, of their own volition, without coercion, will say, what? Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Because Jesus said, until you say that, you will not see me again. So, Israel has got to get in shape so that at least the remnant, there will be a remnant on positive volition toward the Lord Jesus Christ. They will look forward to him. They will, and you know, it's not secular Israel of today. Long way away spiritually from this. So, there has to be this horrible suffering. Uh, down, and and it's, it's, there's adumbrations of this in the Old Testament. The discipline upon the northern kingdom, the discipline on the southern kingdom, the exile, all that stuff. That, that was the same pattern of God trying to get a, their attention. Hey, folks, come on. So, that's one purpose of the tribulation. But, obviously, there are more nations in the world than Israel. So, what about all the other nations? Well, what happened during the, the, the time of the prophets, as they looked forward to the exile, and by the way, oftentimes in the prophetic passage, they don't distinguish the exile from the tribulation period. It's kind of all mishmashed together. It's one of these cases... Um, if you want to get the picture in your head, here's a picture that helps me. I always think of an accordion and how you pull it out. That's the way history looks. In other words, when the accordion is all pushed together, that's the way a lot of the prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah, they're all packed together. And as the clock ticks off and as the calendar years go by and as history comes at us, the accordion expands. We now see more. You get the same perspective when you drive out west and you see the mountains. First thing you do when you see Colorado, you see the, the Rocky Mountains there, and it looks like it's just one big wall of rock. Well, then after you drive some more miles and you realize, oh, there's an individual mountain here, and then there's a valley between it, and there's another one beyond it, and so forth. But from a distance, it all looks like a cluster. But as you get up to it, you realize it's not a cluster. So that's the way it is in prophecy. Well, in one of the... the uh, problems that the Old Testament prophets had to deal with is, what do you do with the nations that God is using to whack his country, his nation? In other words, he's using the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Moabites, and he's, it's like, here's God's sovereignty. He's reaching down. He's using these nations to, to, to discipline his nation. The problem with it is that as these nations are used to do that, they don't see the hand behind them. They only see that, oh, we've got the power. And they get very arrogant and very cocky. And so God has to deal with that. And so the second function of the tribulation is to produce an atmosphere of willingness to look at Israel... As God's, as God's nation. It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Again, the three things in the Abrahamic covenant. A land, a seed, and the third thing, a worldwide blessing. Now, think about it. The worldwide blessing consists of several parts, Right? What is one thing that Israel has given the world before Jesus? Well, 
most of it was given before Jesus. The thing you're holding in your lap tonight. The United States didn't give that to the world. The rest of the Middle Eastern nations didn't give it. Europe didn't give it. The Asian nations didn't give that. This was given through Israel. That's God's word. Now what that means is, is that Israel is the mediatorial nation in human history. It doesn't mean they're better than anybody else. It just means they were chosen by God to be a channel of blessing to the world. In spite of themselves. In spite of themselves. The Bible's quick to point out all the warts in Israel. So it controls any kind of arrogance there. But Israel was selected to be a channel. So Israel has given blessing number one, which is what you hold in your lap tonight. Blessing number two that Israel gave to history is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thoroughly Jewish. Thoroughly Jewish. Why do we know? Because of the, the how does the Gospels always start? So-and-so begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so. What's all that about? To show he's of Jewish genes. Third thing which Israel will give to the world, she hasn't given it yet. What's that? World peace. The Millennium Kingdom isn't here. There's not any world peace. That's a blessing yet to come. But that's not going to come until Israel gets right with the Messiah. And that's the battle that goes on. So, the second reason for the tribulation is to get the nations to understand once again that whatever blessing is received, it will come through the mediation of the nation Israel. Now, those are the two functions of the tribulation in the Old Testament. So now we come down to the New Testament, and what post-tribulationism tries to do is to take prophecies that are speaking of the rapture here, which are given to the church, by the way, and to combine those with prophecies given to Israel. And you have to watch time and place of prophecy in Scripture. Context is everything. And you have to look at not only the literary context, but the temporal context. Where in time and sequence was this revelation given? Post-tribulationism does what many people do, and they get into the Mount Olivet Discourse and claim that what we have there, the rapture is there because one is taken and one is left and all the rest and all the stuff going on there. But wait a minute. Was the church in existence when Jesus spoke the Olivet Discourse? And the answer is no, because the church started when? Started in Pentecost. The church wasn't there then. So he was talking to the disciples as the representatives of the nation Israel. Okay, so number one in our critique of post-tribulationism is that it tries to so weave the return and the rapture together, it really creates a lot of confusion. It's like in the Old Testament trying to weave the first and second advents of Jesus together and coming out with confusion. Then we said a second problem with post-tribulationism is that if the rapture and the return are combined, look at the problem that you have. See, that's what often happens is that, and we'll see it tonight with the three-quarter tribulationism, you start off with these views and at first it looks real good, 
And then you begin to see, my goodness, now I've created secondary and tertiary problems. I've created more problems in the end than I started to solve. And one of the problems that post-tribulationism has is if you have the tribulation here and the rapture and the return both happen together and there's the rapture, a second after the rapture, how many believers are left on earth in natural bodies? None. But if you combine the rapture and the return, and the return is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ setting up his kingdom with people in natural bodies, where does he get these believers in natural bodies from? Well, post-tribulation has to come up with some things here. And as we said, they've made proposals. They've thought that 144,000 might be the, the, the martyrs, really weren't believers. Uh, and so they weren't raptured. And then suddenly after the rapture, they become believers. And it's from that 144,000 people that you get the people for the kingdom. The problem is, without going into the birds and the bees, they're all males. We're the girls. Can't make babies without them. So the point is then that that, that doesn't work as, as a device to overcome this problem. Um, some have said, well, they use repentant Jews. But if the Jews are repentant, and they particularly quote a verse in, in Matthew 24, if those people in Matthew 24 are repentant, and the passage in the rapture isn't until beyond that point in the text, which it is, then if they're repentant before the rapture, they're going to be raptured. So now they're gone. So now who you got left? Well, the last thing is that the prophecy says there's actually a little gap here, about 75 days, from the time the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the time the Millennial Kingdom begins and everything gets straightened around and cleaned up. It has to be garbage cleaning at the end of this thing. So Jesus gets things straight, and it takes him a couple of, you know, a couple of months to do this. And so maybe people became believers during that period. Well, the problem with that is, what do you see Jesus do in Matthew 25? You see him go with the judgment of the sheep and the goats. So he's already divided who's going to enter the kingdom. So it creates a big bunch of problems here. And so that's why this view, I believe, is, is, in, is illogical. Third problem we've seen with it is that if the rapture and the return are at the end of the tribulation, that means that you have the church going through the tribulation until it is raptured. But if the church is going through the tribulation, that means the church is exposed to what? The wrath of God. So now post-tribulation has to come in with another patch-up device. And the patch-up device is that somehow God is going to shield the church like he shielded the Jews during the Exodus. That's one way. And they have other ways, other things. Well, the problem with that is, if you read Exodus, when the Jews were shielded, what does it say about the judgments upon Egypt versus the judgments in Goshen? There was a clear-cut distinction, wasn't there? There were judgments physically that afflicted part of the real estate of Egypt and didn't affect the real estate over here. There was a distinction in real estate or location of the judgment. Yet when you read through the book of Revelation, do you find any of that in the book of Revelation? Is there anything in the text that talks about a distinction on who gets it? It says the whole world gets judged. And the church is going to be scattered over the whole world. 
so the church is exposed to that judgment. Well, some post-tribulationists say, yeah, I know, that doesn't really work, so we'll try something else. Now what we do, and this has, I, want you, I want to discuss this because it actually started post-tribulationism, and when Rosenthal started the three-quarter tribulation, he brought one of these little devices with him over to his view. And that is, they redefine tribulation so as not to be the wrath of God. So, well, one way to make the church safe here is to say that all this stuff that's going on here, it really isn't the wrath of God. The wrath of God happens just a few minutes after the rapture, and it's confined to that. So we redefine the nature of the tribulation. Now, the reason all this has to happen is, I mean, it's not that people are trying to be cute here. It's really, believers are trying to sort this stuff out. And as I prefaced this whole thing, you know, five or six weeks ago when I started, you've got to understand and be patient that at this point in church history, this is the period when the Holy Spirit is working all these eschatological things out. And just like it took the Reformation a couple of centuries to get the gospel clear, it took the church in the Middle Ages a couple of centuries to argue about what Jesus really did on the cross. It took the church centuries to discern who is Jesus. Is he God? Is he man? Is he both? If he's both, do they get mixed? And so on. So it takes time to sort through this. But I believe that as church age goes on, there's a pedagogical lesson plan that the Holy Spirit is executing. That's why the prayers for the maturity of the body of Christ, if you look at all the prayers in the New Testament, praying for maturity, it centers on understanding God's revelation. Yeah, it's talking about Christian character. But you look at those prayers. It's prayer that you might know something. It's prayer that the light would dawn in your heart. It's prayer that you would have, that you would know the Lord. Well, knowing the Lord means knowing His ways. And so, as this church gets mature down through the quarters of time, it's building the body of Christ, the body of Christ getting bigger as the church goes down through time, this body is getting more mature. Because parts of the body, think about this, let's imagine you went to heaven tonight. Think of yourself as going to heaven tonight. You go out here and have an accident or something. Don't, don't have an accident. But I mean, it, it, let's suppose you, God calls you home tonight for some reason. And you get in heaven, and after you get adjusted to things, uh, you're sitting around, and there's a believer out of the third century. Now, can you imagine the interesting conversation? You both know the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you think there'd be kind of an interesting exchange because he's going to wonder, well, gee, what was it like in the 20th century? What was going on then? And you're going to say, well, what was going on with the Romans? Were you one of the guys they threw in the Colosseum or what? So there's, there's a, a transcultural conversation that goes on with the body of Christ. Now, on earth, what we see as the church is only part of the body of Christ. Where's the rest of the body of Christ tonight? It's already in heaven, isn't it? All the saints that have gone before us and have died... There with the Lord tonight. To be absent from the body is to be face to face with the Lord. So we're a part of the body of Christ that's in this moment of history. We pass off the scene, the Lord doesn't come. There'll be another generation of believers yet to come. And they'll have their own unique historical thing. What I'm getting at is this, that every moment of history is sovereignly administered by the Holy Spirit to train the body of Christ. And in this 
period of time in training the body to appreciate eschatological truth is probably the last part of the edification of the body of Christ. In other words, basically every doctrinal area is, has been covered. And the tools that the Holy Spirit inevitably uses to teach us corporately as a body of Christ is the same kind of tools he used to teach us individually. Now, how do you learn most spiritually? It's usually when you're under pressure, when you're suffering, when you've had an adversity, and you pick yourself up off the floor uh, of some disaster, and then you come back to the scriptures and say, did it really say that? Oh, yeah. Gee, why didn't I see that one before? Well, the same thing with the body of Christ corporately. What the Holy Spirit is doing in our period of history is he's forcing the church to get the big picture of where history is going. Have you noticed that in the past 200 years, the major heresies on the world scene have all been eschatological? Think of it for a moment. Adolf Hitler, what was the nickname of his kingdom? The Third Reich. Why was it the third and not the second and the fourth? Because it was a careful scheme that he had worked up. He thought of it as the great third kingdom of history to come. Think of communism. You couldn't have had a more elaborate eschatology than what Karl Marx gave communism. And today, the, the fervent uh, fundamentalist Muslims have a fervor, a sharia, they're going to establish a kingdom of God on earth, a theocratic kingdom. It's a theocratic kingdom. God is ruling through the strict codes, the Sharia. Well, it seems that in the middle of all this, the, church, the Lord is saying to the church, now get your, your you know, see the, see the guys out there? Look at, they're all struggling for an answer to where history is going. Now, I've given you the answer. It's all there in the Word. So how about just cooling it for a while and studying the Scripture and understanding what I'm trying to do in history? And I believe that's what we're trying to do here. So... We have all these views, and you can't get discouraged because there are all these views. We happen to live in that era of church history. So, as part of the issue for the post-tribulationist, is he, he asks the church going through here, he redefines the wrath of God, and finally we said one of the problems is that when he pushes everything down to this one local event, what then happens is that we have a problem locating where the Bema Seat judgment occurs and the wedding feast. Because the wedding feast of the bride, who was made ready, presuming the Bema Seat judgment has already happened, comes with Christ at the return. So you've got to have a heck of a lot of stuff going on here in a few milliseconds or minutes between the rapture and the return. And that's the weakness of post-tribulation. It tries to compress too many things together. And if you think about the larger picture, what it's really doing, it's mixing the church and Israel together. That's why, structurally, what's going on here. Now in the notes, if you turn to page 129, we come to three-quarter tribulationism. So let me draw the picture on the board here. And I think I have a picture, yes, figures eight in the notes. Three-quarter tribulationism uh, was promoted by two men, Van Campen, who was a very wealthy Christian publisher. Uh, if you invest in mutual funds, you probably have no, recognize that name, Van Campen. 
And Rosenthal, um, who uh, was a man in the Friends of Israel, who many years was a pre-tribulationist and became a three-quarter tribulationist. Now, I'm deliberately labeling it as three-quarter tribulationism and not pre-wrath. Let me tell you why. As I say in the footnote, the bottom of 129, all the views are pre-wrath. It's a little gratuitous to label this view as pre-wrath. The post-tribs believe in pre-wrath because those who have redefined the tribulation not to be wrath of God are pre-wrath. The mid-trib people don't believe that the wrath of God happens in the first half. They're pre-wrath. And pre-tribs are pre-wrath. So everybody in this controversy is pre-wrath. So the book really isn't even named properly. Now, the second, the, 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 to understand the view on figure eight, this view has several unique features that the other views don't have. One of the views that it has is that the tribulation, instead of being divided in half, because traditionally scholars of all of the futurist views have always held the tribulation to be half, to two parts. And of course, the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, occurs right here. Tribulation begins with a covenant that the Antichrist makes with some in Israel. Three and a half years later, you have the Antichrist who desecrates the temple in a, in a pattern that seems to parallel what Antiochus Epiphanes did um, a century or two before Jesus. So you have that abomination. And then you have all the events and the return of Jesus here. So you have this twofold division, normally speaking, of the tribulation. Now this twofold division is very inherent in the literary text. If you do an analysis, like you diagram sentences, and you go through the, the, the Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, you will actually see that it's chiastic structure in there. By chiasm, we mean the text, uh, you get this kind of a pattern in chiasm. A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime. In other words, uh, an author will do, do one topic, and then he'll do a second topic, and a third topic, and then he does the third topic, the second topic, and the first topic. But where, where that division is, that, that there's a relationship between A and A prime, B and B prime, and C and C prime, and right there, that center point, is what he's trying to emphasize. It's a little device, literary device. You see it sometimes in the New Testament epistles. Well, when you have a chiasm, you really want to understand and find out, well, what is this author structuring his chiastic structure around? It's got a pivot point. And it turns out when you do that, diagram it out in Matthew 24, the pivot point is the abomination of desolation. So that plus the, the traditional division, that's why scholars have traditionally divided the tribulation in half. Well, this view divides the tribulation actually in three parts. And that's why in figure eight we have a third part, which is halfway through the second half. So instead of one and two, we have section one, section two, and section three. Now, logically speaking, what uh, this view does is it's an improvement over the post-tribulational position. Why do we say that? Because it distinguishes the rapture and the return as two events. It doesn't cluster them together at the end. It pulls them apart and says that the rapture happens right here. That's the rapture. The return happens over here. 
So correctly, it does distinguish these two, two things. Um, okay. Now, judging from what we did with the post-tribulation position, can you guess, knowing no more than the diagram I just drew, this is, these, there's a structure to all these things. Now, think of it. Look at that diagram carefully. Look where the rapture is. Look where the return of Christ is. And ask yourself the question, where must the wrath of God be located in this view? If it's going to protect the church from the wrath of God, where must the wrath of God be? It must be in that third section. Okay? And that's what they do. Pre-wrath means the rapture happens here. This area here is the wrath of God. So between the rapture and the return, there's this period of one half of three and a half years, which is the wrath of God. Now, if that period is the wrath of God and periods one and two are not the wrath of God, what is this view doing about the rest of the tribulational judgments? It's either having to trivialize them or turn them into something other than the wrath of God. So as we go through this, we want to look for that. Because in each one of these positions, you're going to have to track where the wrath of God is and where it isn't. Because the church is separating the two. Okay. So the wrath of God is in period three, but not period one and not period two. Moreover, the authors, particularly Mr. Rosenthal, likes to make a point, and, and he's, he's correct factually in making this particular point, um, and that is that the word tribulation in the New Testament is used, it's used technically to refer to the great tribulation which normally is this part. Normally, GT. Jesus uses that expression, great tribulation. Rosenthal faults the rest of the, us in the futurist schools for using the word tribulation to describe the full seven-year period. He says it shouldn't be done because the scripture text doesn't permit that. Well, not actually. Remember I said last time that here's where vocabulary gets to be a problem. You can have tribulation or you can have tribulation. The common noun tribulation refers to normal trials and tribulations. And that goes on to the whole church age. In the world you shall have trials and tribulations. No one's denying that. And no one is trying to get the church to escape those tribulations. It's not an escape hatch problem. It's a wrath of God problem here. Now, the word tribulation has, and, and, and he's correct in pointing out the word tribulation technically doesn't, isn't applied to the full seven-year period. Its synonyms, however, are. So that's, it's not factual that, that it's totally clean. I'll show you in a minute. But... The word tribulation has been applied for this whole period because of Old Testament theology that originally said the whole period of time is to get Israel ready 
for that tribulation. And you remember when we introduced this back weeks and weeks and weeks ago, what did we say was one of the great metaphors of the tribulation? So it happens to women who have babies. Labor pains, right? Okay. Now, if we go to... You remember that night that I did that, I went to Matthew 24, and at the beginning of the tribulation, the seven-year period, what does Jesus say? These are the beginning of what? Birth pains. So now Jesus is using labor pains to include both the first and the second half of the tribulation. Okay? So, it's, while the word great tribulation itself, just the word, is only used for this half, theologians have tended to use the word tribulation for the whole period because of these metaphors because of Old Testament theology. It's not like they sat in a closet and said, we're going to deceive somebody. It's that that's the natural flow. So, just understand that background. Now, looking on page 130 of the notes, um, I've explained the first paragraph already. Now, let me go to the second paragraph. You'll follow with me reading through that. Such an arrangement requires a unique view of the book of Revelation. What I mean is such an arrangement, I'm talking about this three tripartite division of the book of, of, of tribulation. Such an arrangement, the tripartite arrangement, requires a unique view of the book of Revelation. Since the wrath of God is mentioned in Revelation 6.17, we're going to turn there in just a minute, just follow the text, my, my notes here. Since the wrath of God is mentioned in Revelation 6.17 in connection with the sixth seal judgment, that seal must be pushed forward into the second half of Daniel's 70th week. Why? Just from what we said so far. Why must the seventh seal be pushed all the way to the three-quarter point? Because on their interpretation, if the sixth seal is the beginning of what? The wrath of God. It can't precede the rapture of the church. So what happens is, is that the book of Revelation now, the sixth seal, starts here. Or if you look carefully on the diagram on page 129, you'll see that, that actually it's at the end of period two. And to see why, turn, turn open the Bible t tonight to, to Revelation chapter 6. Chapter 6, 17. Now, this is a picture of one of those seal judgments. And we'll talk about seals in a moment. This is not seals that come out of the water. <laughs> um, this is seals that are on a, on a parchment that are broken. Okay, this is not animals. The sixth seal, some people, I don't know where it was, but <laughs> I was talking to somebody who was teaching this one time, and somehow somebody, you know when people listen to you, sometimes you think you're so clear. And then afterwards you realize, man, did I miss that one. And whoever this person was, they were sitting there and they thought seal judgment meant the seals were coming out of the, out of the ocean or something here. Well, no, we're not talking about those seals. We're talking about seals on a parchment. In Revelation 6.17, here's a statement of the wrath of God. Now, let's back up a moment to verse 15 
and look at the context of this verse. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now, that is the po- at that point... We're involved with this sixth seal thing. If you look up in verse 1 of this chapter, you begin to have the Lamb breaking the seven seals. And it goes on through all of the sequence and so on. And verse 12, he gets to the sixth seal. And when he breaks the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs, shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. We're talking big-time global geophysical catastrophe at this point. And the people that are left, are these people, by the way, believers or unbelievers? What tells you they're unbelievers? Hiding from the wrath of the Lamb, just like Adam and Eve. What do they do after they sin in the garden? Head. I know no atheists here. Everybody knows God's there. And so even here at this point, they're not atheists. They don't believe. And by the way, they have this, either they actually see this, the, the Lamb, or they know of it through the preaching of, the, of whatever contact they've had with the Word of God. But the point is that when they see this happen, they say, the day of the wrath has come. Now what the three-quarter tribulation people do with this verse is say that that means that the wrath is now going to start. It hasn't started yet. It is going to start. So verse 17 becomes a future statement. That is, it's a prophecy in a sense that the next of that 17th verse. Now, the other problem is, okay, we move all the wrath down into the third period. But the problem is that we have this great tribulation here in period number two. Now, can period number two have any wrath of God in it? And the answer is no, not in this scheme. So the tribulation, the great tribulation, has to be distinguished from the wrath of God somehow. You have to make this bifurcation of meaning between these two terms. But once you do that, since there are passages that say the great tribulation is going to be three and a half years, How can the Great Tribulation be three and a half years and yet get cut short here? It looks like its period two is shortened. Now, how they do this is they turn to Matthew 24, 22. So if you turn to Matthew 24, 22 a moment.
And what is said in Matthew 24, 22 is, and unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. This school of interpretation believes that verse 22 of Matthew 24 says that that great tribulation is not three and a half years. It's been cut short. And so since it's been cut short, it can now all be compressed and dropped into that second, Roman numeral second age. Okay? Okay. That's the outline of the position. Now here's what follows from that. And there are some problems with it. And this is why this view, while, it's been, while it was popular in 1990, after a lot of people have looked at it, they have some questions. Um, following the notes on page 130, we'll have time tonight to get into at least um, one of the key, maybe two of the, of the issues that flow out of this. So let's look first at that first paragraph, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Three-quarter tribulationism starts, unfortunately, with some careless exegesis in theology that causes it to create problems of interpretation that didn't exist before it got started. It's creating problems. Let me give you an example. After trying to resolve these derivative problems, the view ends up with a series of additional problems in setting the church via the tribulation. A prime example concerns the concept of tribulation. From Table 8, we observe that Israel looked forward through the Old Testament with a dread to the time of tribulation. Old Testament revelation supplies sufficient information to understand clearly the meaning of the term. Remember, we went back to Deuteronomy 4 where the term tribulation is first used. During Old Testament history, God caused various judgments that prepared Israel for the ultimate judgment or tribulation yet to come. As we pointed out in discussing Table 8, these Old Testament divine interventions consisted of both human armies and geophysical catastrophes. Examples. When God wanted to discipline Israel in David's day, he used, remember, uh, a sickness, a plague. But he also used the armies of Babylon. In the northern kingdom, he used the armies of Assyria. And this is what he said. Let's go back and recall what we studied. When we studied how this all got started in the Old Testament. Let's go back to those two passages, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. And let's look at the tools of his wrath. Let's do Deuteronomy 28. Verse 15, Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, is an enumeration of the judgments of God upon the nation. But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses come upon you and overtake you. Cursed be you in the city, and he has a series of curses. The Lord will send upon you, verse 20, the Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, rebuke, and so forth, and uh, uh, in all you undertake to do until you destroy it, until you perish quickly on account of the evil deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until it has consumed you from the land. Now, is that a human agency or is that a supernatural agency? It's a supernatural agency. 
The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and fiery heat. Is that human agency or is that some providentially mediated agency? Mediated agency. And with a sword and with blight and mildew. Now the sword is human. And the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you iron. Geophysical catastrophes. The Lord will make rain of your land powder and dust. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Is that human? Here's the human agency. And we could go through this text, but the whole theology of the Old Testament tells you that the wrath of God has both human elements as well as nature. Man and nature. Remember when we went back to creation? There's three categories. God, man, and nature. And God is the God of both man and nature. So when God gets mad, guess what tools he can use? He can use people or he can use nature. It goes back to creation. And it's reiterated to the Old Testament. So my point is that in this scheme of three-quarter tribulationism, in order to get the wrath of God confined to that Roman 3 area, you've got to scrape it out of area 2 and 1, don't you? Well then, what about the judgments that are happening in areas 1 and 2? Three-quarter tribulation says that all the judgments that happen in here are the result of human means. And the ones that are in, uh, in category three are divine means. Now, let's understand, why do they have to say this? Because if they're by natural means, we've got the wrath of God. But if the wrath of God is at the beginning and earlier, now the rapture must have to be beginning and earlier. Or else, now we've got the church exposed to the wrath of God. You get the logic? If I locate the rapture there, and if it's true that the church is not going to be exposed to the wrath of God, there can't be any wrath of God in areas one and two. So, but we have prophecies of some pretty nasty stuff going on in, in 1 and 2. So what the proponents of this view argue is that, yeah, but the things that we see in those other sealed judgments are all things that are human caused. They're results of man. Well, let's turn to Matthew 24 a moment. Everyone agrees that Matthew 24, all schools agree that Matthew 24 is talking about this future period of tribulation. This is the Mount Olivet Discourse. Revelation is an expansion of Matthew 24. Now, at the beginning of Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about early things that are happening in the tribulation, he says, verse 5, Many will come into my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they'll mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. We've got a lot of frightened people in this country right now, worried about war. And it's, it's, they always turn into this anti-war business. And make it, because it looks like, and I'm not accusing everybody is against, the, against war. I mean, there's some very godly people that historically are pacifists. I respect that. But by and large, I observed during the Vietnam era, the people that were always anti-war were people who did not want to be personally disturbed. And they mask it with some sort of morality. 
I saw some of the drug heads, fornicators, and people of violence rioting against the war in Vietnam on moral grounds. Excuse me. Not moral grounds, it's just they don't want to personally have the courage to handle a problem. They're like parents who have a brat and don't do anything about it. And then wind up with a disaster for the rest of their life. Because it takes courage to stand against evil. And it takes courage to stand to a bully. And we all know from school what you have to do to handle bullies. You have to knock their block off, or at least even if they whip you, you cause so much hurt on them that they go take an easier target next time. And this is the way it is. This is a fallen world. This isn't the kingdom of God. We don't live in the millennium. Of course there's going to be wars. And right here's a classic text. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Who said this? Jesus did. And what does he say? See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but that's not the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Now, that's human, isn't it? Those are human agencies. Now, what's the next clause? There will be what and what? That's nature. That's not human. That's nature. But all these things, and now here's verse 8 where he's talking about tribulation. These are the beginning of the birth pains. So there's the gun, and this is at the beginning of the tribulation. Because no matter where, whether they're um, three-quarter trib or post-trib, they don't put the rapture until you get way down later on in the text. Yet here it is, ahead of that passage, and we're talking about birth pains. And the very word is the word for tribulation. There's no difference in the Greek, Greek here. Um, there you have tribulation, and there you have human and divine agencies intermixed. Okay? So that's one of the problems of three-quarter tribulationism. When you want to put the rapture here, you've got to keep all the wrath of God on the right side of it. But when you do that, you have to unload the wrath of God from the front end. And the only way you can do that is by some device. The post-trib people do it because God somehow is going to keep the church intact all through it. Or you redefine wrath of God. And in this view, the, the device is to redefine wrath of God as to be natural-based judgments, not human-based judgments. Okay? So, fin finishing off that paragraph on, on, on 130, bottom, there's a series of additional problems. Three-quarter tribulation, is, this is the, about four lines up from the bottom. Therefore, three-quarter tribulationism's attempt um, to separate the 70th week events into purely human invasions and persecutions that occur in the first two sections of figure eight and divine geophysical catastrophes that occur only in the third day of the Lord's section is artificial and unbiblical. This view fails to explain that how earthquakes that occur in the first section, Matthew 24, 7, are caused by man and not geophysical judgments caused by God. Now, I want to conclude tonight. We're going to have to stop right here with that next sentence. But before I read that next sentence, I want you to see the text over in Revelation chapter 6. So if you'll skip back to Revelation 6, we have those seals. Remember I said I'd come back to the seals? We're not going to feed them. We're going to find out who, what the seals are in Revelation chapter 6. Verse 1. 
Now, here at this point, what's happened before before you can get to chapter 6, verse 1? Think about it, those of you who have read Revelation before. What's going on in in chapters 4 and 5? Who is being honored there? Who is the one who is worthy? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the basis of his declared worthiness? Remember, chapter 5 starts out, look at how chapter 5 started out. I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven and no one on earth, no one under the earth, was able to open the book or even look at it. See, this is God the Father holding up this thing that has got seven seals on it. And he says, Who? Who's qualified to open this? And, you know, the angels are looking at each other, well, I'm not qualified to do that. And the people who are believers who are in heaven say, we're not qualified to do that. It has to be a perfectly sinless person and one who has attained rank. Who has the rank to do this? So it's not just moral perfection, but it's also a ranking. Uh, if you've been around military headquarters, for, uh, it's an interesting example. I, I can remember when I was involved with a thing with uh, Strategic Air Command um, years and years ago. You'd walk in to this headquarters to give a briefing, and you'd have to go through all these scanners and everything else because he- here inside this room is where all the generals are going to be making the battle staff that are sitting there make- making big decisions. So they scan you and so forth, and you go through, and there's a big sign. Never forget the sign. It says, um, by order of the commander, lethal force is authorized. And what that is announcing, when you walk by that sign, you're saying that you, you give up your right. You can be shot from that point on in, if you are out of line. That's how serious it is. In our command post, it would always be, you pass that sign and you take your life in your hands. Because lethal force will be used. And that's the picture here in heaven. God holds this thing up and he says, who's got the rank to do this? And so everybody's you know, talking to one another. Verse 4, John realizes what's going on and he starts to weep because he realizes that the Father is holding up the key to history. Somehow he knows that this is going to end the story. But it's like a drama and the character isn't there. I began to cry because no one was found worthy to open the book or even look into it. And one of the elders said, Stop weeping. Look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open the book. Notice, he has overcome. So whatever happened in chapter 4, up to this point, the Lord Jesus has attained a position that qualifies him to walk into the command post of God the Father and take the orders in his hand. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is a tremendous picture, and almost an angelic picture of the Lord Jesus here. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So the Son approaches as God-man. The Son walks into the presence of God the Father. He takes it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, 
the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp, seven bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. And they said, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain. You purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests, and so on. And it goes on. In verse 12, the angels. And it talks about an innumerable company. There's millions and millions of these angels. It would be fascinating to see these things someday. But there's millions of them all around us, out into the depths of the universe. And these are the guys right here who in verse 12 are going to say, worthy is the Lamb. So now the angels join in in this choir. And they say, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. When they say that word, dominion forever and ever, that's the signal. Because that's what the seven seals are about. Jesus Christ will now assert his dominion. And so in verse 1 of chapter 6, which we'll start later because we ran over tonight. I'm sorry, but we did. Um, in verse 1 of chapter 6, I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures saying, a voice of thunder, come. And so there begins judgment. Now, how you can separate the seven seals, some into non-divine judgments that are caused by men, and others, this seal number seven, is the divine judgment, I don't know. They are all caused by the Lord Jesus Christ executing his throne rights. And he begins to peel those seals off. And every time he peels a seal off, boom, we get another judgment on earth. And he says, okay, but that's enough for number one. Now I'm going to try number two. Boom, he breaks the second seal. Bam, all kinds of things happen all over the earth. Okay, that's done. Let's go to three. Boom, he breaks the third seal. And so that's what triggers all these things. Both divine and human agencies are now triggered in a, a tremendous escalating wrath of God. And it becomes highly artificial to separate these first six seals. Moreover, to conclude tonight, at the end when we say, verse 17, when these unbelievers say the wrath of God has come, it's an aorist verb in the Greek, now that can mean, Eris is kind of loosey-goosey when it comes to tenses. So you have to take it from the context. But it's a lot more natural to take this as past tense than a future tense. Because these people aren't prophets, they're unbelievers. They're not like they're saying, okay, now we know the wrath of God is going to come. They've just seen the wrath of God, and they've concluded the wrath of God has come. So, verse 17 is best taken as retrospective, not prospective. And that would link these seven seal judgments then together as an exposition of the wrath of God. So, we'll have to stop there because we ran out of time tonight. We'll continue with this future. But again, don't get discouraged by all this. God has a reason for allowing the church to dig around here, just like he allowed the church to dig around about Christology, Trinity, and all the rest. He wants us to know him. Father, thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we thank you most of all for that lamb who is going to exercise his dominion someday. And may each of us be ready for that moment by personally trusting in him and seeing to it that in our lives we produce divine good and not a lot of human garbage. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen.
Um, we have a few moments here, so I see both George and Debbie here tonight, so we won't have any shortage of questions. Our, our two trigger people. Oh, go ahead. distinction in the first place if people just carried forward very simply from the Old Testament pictures. I mean, this is not... A lot of this revelation here, folks, is just details. The overall outline's all there in the Old Testament. It's not like, you know, this is radical new stuff here. And so, and that's true, what Jeek was just saying is God is impartial toward all people. And what he's saying is that you're sinners. And, you know, it's 11th hour times. Game's over. And see, that's something else that, um, you know, even this concept has gotten bad and screwed up. I, I was just reading an article about the redefinition of grace. Before I screw that up and get involved in that thing, let me, let me carry on what we're talking about today. We talked about the game is over. So forget all the little details about which pre-trib, post-trib, the big picture is the game's going to be over. Now, by saying the game is going to be over, what do we mean? We mean the day of opportunity to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ goes away. That the day of grace is not an endless period of time. It is only a period that marked off by the beginning of the gospel announcement, which was graciously given in the Garden of Eden, when, when the Lord walked into the garden and he could have said, you know, bang, bang, you're dead. And that would have been it. No day of grace. When does grace show up? When he killed an animal in front of Adam and Eve and they saw, for the first time in their lives, they, they saw death. They saw God slaughter an animal. They never saw anything bleed like that before. They never saw an animal just with its eyes looking at you one minute and then, then they go blank because the animal's now dead. What a horrible thing that must have been for Adam and Eve. Shocked. When God did that, he promised them. And that was the proto-evangelium. That was the beginning of the day of grace. 
So we have a day of grace bounded on one end by the Garden of Eden, bounded on the other end by the end of history. And it has periods, the Millennial Kingdom ends a certain period of history and then the end of the Millennium. I know all that, but just think in terms of beginning and end. Grace is limited. Now, unfortunately we have prominent Christian authors now subtly using the word grace as a synonym for general blessing and loving nature of God. Now that's a little slippery and greasy because before the fall, did God love his creatures? Sure he did. But after sin began, started, and there was rebellion against God, the question is, what does love and justice do now, now that we've got sin? And grace is the answer. That there's a, there's a new revelation of God's character that begins after the fall. And we've, we've talked about this before. Um, apparently, there's no redemption for angels. And apparently, they had a time to choose one way or the other, and it's locked up. I mean, their destinies are locked up. And it's probably very horrible, if you think about it, for a demon, or for Satan even, to look at us and think and just sit there and smolder when he looks at us. Probably one reason why he hates us. Um, that, you know, look at that. Those creatures get a second chance. And I didn't. Now think of it from momentarily, just from a creature who knows no grace, who has an utter concept of grace, totally out. The grace is behind a glass wall. He can look in there and see it operate, but he never can come into the room. He's excluded forever from God's grace. What a horrible thing. And so what a privileged thing it is to be able as creatures of God to be enjoying his grace. But we have to be careful. Grace does not mean leniency. Grace is reinterpreted as God being lenient. He's not being lenient. The basis of grace was the death of his son. It wasn't very lenient on Jesus on the cross for three hours while he bore the sins of the world. That wasn't lenience. So, so be careful when you read and you see the word G-R-A-C-E to understand that that is not just a word for sweetness, for leniency, for God is a God of love. Well, yeah, he's a God of love. He's also a God of justice. Grace is the name of the plan of salvation. And it's going to come to an end. Now, that's why these passages that we've talked about tonight are so... Uh, people don't like to discuss this, this business. And the reason is, is because behind it, regardless of the individual view, the idea that history is going to end in this, this business of, well, God's not going to be lenient anymore. That's right. Because he never was lenient. He was allowing man an opportunity to respond to him. But that allowing period is only a period of time that's cut off and bounded. The other side of the coin is that grace has a strange corollary to it. That in allowing this day of grace, God allows evil to manifest itself also. And consider what we always, in our fallen nature, want to do. We see something 
and we want to stop the pain. We want to stop the evil. Why is God so, un, uh, so, so unjust to allow this evil to go on? See, God gets damned whatever he does. If he, if he postpones judgment, now he's a bad God because he lets evil go on. And people say, oh, he's a bad God. Look at those babies that die, deformed babies. And what about these people that die in war? And oh, is that horrible? Boy, God, you're about to be embarrassed. And this is, this is the very words I'm using from atheists that I've heard. God ought to be ashamed of himself. Well, I remember when um, Ger- uh, Bonson, again, this is first name now, Greg Bonson, was debating the head of the American... Uh, no, he wasn't. He was, yeah, he was debating the lead attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union in Los Angeles. And this guy got up there, and he, he just railed at God. He, he just said, God... He says, I'll tell you about your God. If God is there, hey, God, you ought to be embarrassed by Boschewitz. Because he, he was a Jewish person lost his family at Boschewitz. And so he spouted off, and so came Greg Bonson's time to respond to him. And he said, the guy's name was Mr. Tabash. And he said, Mr. Tabash, you know, you can be very thankful God's gracious and he didn't answer your request tonight when you asked for judgment. Because you're not ready for judgment. And half the people in this room aren't ready for judgment. You know not what you ask for. You want to end history? You really want to end history? You want to end it? Okay, God will end it and you'll end it in a judgment. And if you're not prepared for that judgment, you're going to have a real hard time because from that point on, you're locked out of the kingdom. So isn't it interesting that if God postpones his judgment, he's blamed for allowing evil to go on. If he does judge, he's blamed for being a nasty God who judges. I mean, come on. It's one way or the other, folks. But either way, it's God's fault. See how perverse we in the human race, in this fallen human race, are to throw our face and our fist in the eyes of God and blame him for letting grace go on because evil happens. And then when he stops the evil, now he's a bad God for stopping it. So that's the background involved in all this. I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees. The big idea in all this judgment is that God is serious. As God of the universe, he's going to straighten it out. We have messed it up. We messed up his creation. And it's his creation, not ours. He owns the atoms and the molecules. He owns this ground, not us. And we're responsible to him. And he's going to show that. And that passage in in Revelation 5 is a wonderful passage. You can just... It's so empowering when when you get... A somewhat distorted picture of who Jesus is sometimes by reading the Gospels and the Gospels and the Gospels and the Gospels. Sometimes you forget the cosmic side of the Lord Jesus as the ascended Savior and Judge. Well, there, God has revealed in Revelation 5 and 6, just prayerfully read through that text and visualize what John saw that here comes out of all the universe, from one end of this universe to the other, there wasn't one creature who had the rank to walk into that throne of God and take that scroll. Only one. And there were millions and millions of creatures present to watch that. And these are all godly creatures that watched it. The godly angels and the believers. 
And no one, no one had the rank to go take that out of his hand. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. I'll take it. And then he begins to peel those seals off. It's a scroll, actually. People think, scholars think that, that the words from, from that, that picture, that text, is that they had these big scrolls and they would uh, roll part of it up and then seal it. And then they'd roll some more up and they'd seal it and so forth. So when Jesus peels off the first seal, he's breaking only the first part of that scroll and he's unrolling a certain part of it. And as he unrolls that scroll, apparently the scriptures, I mean, leave you to infer that that's his dominion license. He's taking back. Now it's his. And he's taking it back by force. Now there's a, there's a good balancing picture of the Lord Jesus. That's what's going to happen. And it doesn't matter who li- doesn't like it. Nobody has the rank. Nobody can walk into the throne room and take it. So, a great picture, I think, tonight. of just, just thinking in terms of who our Savior is. What a mighty judge he is, too. And that's the thing that you want to get back to. To know the Lord as we go through this, this, all these little details. They're just attempts by Christians, by believers, to try to get some of these facts in line so they fit together. That's the battle. Okay? Tommy. Oh, I'm sorry. Debbie. Gee, Debbie, I missed your question tonight. Okay. Right. Deb's asked a, a good good question here. How there's seven seals in chapter six. Uh, how do you spread that out for the whole tribulation when it seems like there's the trumpet judgments and the vile judgments and so on? There's a lot more that goes on in the book of Revelation, and that's the point. Um, if you wait until three-quarters of the way through, and you've got six of those sealed judgments, you've only got the seventh one left, and that is just that last chunk. That's why most of the other views don't do that. They put the sealed judgments earlier, precisely because of that problem. And the problem that you have here with this view is, is a less of a problem you have with a post-trib view. Post-trib view is in a real mess because they've got to get those vile judgments out of the way, the trumpet judgments out of the way, and, and do it all very quick. And, and they've compressed it so far, they've just got about that much room to put all those judgments on. So you're going to go very slow. It's like music that plays very slow through those first seal judgments, and then it goes through and gets all the others. And it just doesn't fit the, the fl- flavor of the book of Revelation. So even in this view, what happens is by pushing the sixth seal so late in the period, you wind up with just the seventh seal. Now you've got vile judgments, and in fact, there's not room in this position for the vile judgments. What the three-quarter trib people have to do is take the vile judgments and project them out in that 75-day period, because they, they just can't compress it all. 
in the seven-year period. So these are things that have to work out. Lots of details here. It's not easy to track. Um, our time has... Uh, I always try to get you all out of here by 9 o'clock. Time's up. We'll go through it uh, next week and continue. Okay?